X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, November 9th. It's a good day to subscribe to The Local. We would certainly appreciate it. Please do subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite platform. And if you're already subscribed, it is a wonderful day to invite a friend to join in on the fun. You can find us on all the platforms at linktree backslash the local Portland. Today, back in the day, November 9th, 1857, Oregon voters turned down a proposal that would have made Oregon a state that permitted the enslavement of black people. In the early 1850s, many of Oregon's first white settlers were non-slaveholding farmers from Missouri and border states. They had moved to Oregon because they had struggled to compete against farmers who were using enslaved black people in labor camps. Most of these Missouri farmers were opposed to slavery, but were also opposed to having African Americans among them. A man named Colonel Nathaniel Ford was among a smaller group who did bring enslaved black people to Oregon. Colonel Ford arrived in Oregon in 1844. He was a sheriff of Howard County in Missouri. And prior to immigrating to Oregon country, Ford had promised the people he enslaved that he would free them when they reached the Willamette Valley of Oregon and help Ford establish a farm. Ford did not follow through on this promise. In 1849, an enslaved African named Robin Holmes agreed to work the California gold fields for Ford's son. In return, he asked for his family to be freed. Ford freed Polly, Robin, and a newborn baby, but did not free the couple's four other children. Two years later, one of Robin's children, Harriet, died. This spurred Robin to seek legal action against Ford. And although the first provisional government passed law in 1843 banning slavery, it was not being enforced. So on April 16, 1852, Robin filed a lawsuit against his white former enslaver. This is the only slavery case adjudicated in an Oregon court. Holmes was one of about 50 enslaved Africans who were brought to Oregon from Missouri. George H. Williams from New York was appointed as the new Chief Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court, and within weeks of taking office, in the case of Holmes v. Ford, Williams ruled that because Oregon did not have a law approving slavery, Ford must return the children he enslaved to Robin and Polly Holmes, their parents. Williams noted, and I am quoting, There were a great many virulent pro-slavery men in the territory, and this decision, of course, was very distasteful to them. The ruling in Holmes v. Ford was reaffirmed by Oregon voters today back in the day, November 9, 1857, when they voted down a proposal that would have made Oregon a state that permitted the enslavement of people of African descent. During the trial, it was alleged and proven years later that Ford had planned to return to Missouri and sell the children under the Fugitive Slave Act. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines, and we have an interview with Nafisa Fai, the first black member and the first Muslim member of the Washington County Commission. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown, and here is Emily Gilliland. X-Ray. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. Oregonians reacted in a number of different ways. On Saturday, Joe Biden was announced as the winner of the presidential election by multiple news outlets, including the Associated Press and Fox News. Hundreds gathered in Portland and in Salem in celebration and in protest. On Saturday, near Pioneer Square in downtown Portland, a large crowd gathered, blaring their car horns and waving banners. This crowd, which grew as the afternoon went on, celebrated by playing music and dancing. Many wore masks. That same day, a Black Lives Matter march of about 300 moved through Multnomah Village in southwest Portland. In Salem, a group of about 200 Trump supporters gathered near the Capitol building. And in Vancouver, a group of nearly 100 marched on the I-5 carrying American flags and Trump flags. These crowds were spurred by the president's claims that the election is not over yet, despite his loss. 
Also in Salem, a group of about 50 Black Lives Matter protesters marched near the Capitol. They were met by police in riot gear who declared the march an unlawful assembly. Four people were arrested. 40% of Oregon voters voted for Trump. Your daily dose of data this weekend saw a dramatic spike in COVID cases in Oregon. On Sunday alone, 874 new cases were reported by the Oregon Health Authority. Sunday also saw one more death from the illness. The state's case total is now at 50,448. The death toll is 730. On Friday, Kate Brown delivered the latest analysis of Oregon's sudden spike. New restrictions have been ordered for five counties starting November 11th. At a press conference on Friday, Brown claimed that the spread was being caused by social gatherings. Small gatherings like having friends over for dinner can, quote, drastically heighten the risk of exposure. According to investigators, a single Halloween party was the cause of an outbreak in a long-term care facility with 24 cases and one death. More cases are expected from this one event. Though Oregon has one of the lowest case and death counts per capita in the country, cases are skyrocketing. Consequently, Multnomah, Marion, Umatilla, Mallory, and Jackson counties will all be facing new restrictions. Portland-based power company Pacific Corps will cut employee pay by 10% if they choose to work from home. Pacific Corps will reopen its offices today, November 9th, in the Lloyd District, despite a new spike in COVID cases in Multnomah County. The company announced a new policy that would cut employee pay by 10% if the employee decides to work from home. Pacific Corps claims this is a, quote, equitable trade-off in exchange for the elimination of commute time, additional flexibility, transportation cost savings, and even potential tax breaks. Other companies across the country are trying to use incentives to bring their employees back into the office. A real estate agency in New York is offering free tutoring for the children of agents who are enrolled in online class. A spokesperson for the power company owned by Warren Buffett stated, quote, We know that for some employees, the flexibility and benefits of working from home outweigh a salary reduction. Pacific Corps claims that safety remains their top priority for employees. Protesters threw eggs, flares, and paint at the home of Commissioner Dan Ryan. Dan Ryan, Portland's newest city commissioner, voted against a proposed $18 million cut in the Portland Police Bureau's budget last week. Thursday night, about 60 protesters marched to his home in North Portland. Protesters chanted him through eggs, flares, and balloons filled with paint. A window and two terracotta planters were smashed. Protesters had showed up to his house earlier last week before the vote took place. He spoke with demonstrators outside of his house for about an hour, leaving them hopeful that he would support the cut. On Wednesday night, Ryan delivered a nine-minute speech opposing the cut, claiming it would undermine public safety. Ryan was elected to the commission this year after the death of Councilman Nick Fish. His campaign website claimed that he would, quote, find ways to follow up on the $15 million cuts to the Portland police budget with even more substantial cuts. Joanne Hardesty, who had proposed the $18 million in cuts, stated on Friday that, quote, we can disagree and be upset over these issues, but I do not condone what took place at the commissioner's home last night. And those who engaged in the acts need to be held responsible. Newly released documents have revealed more about the circumstances of the shooting of Kevin Peterson Jr. A 13-page warrant made public Friday describes the sequence of events that led to his killing over a week ago. According to the document, drug task force officers had been tipped off by a confidential informant 
to a drug deal involving Peterson. Peterson met with the informant at the Quality Inn in Hazel Dell to sell 50 Xanax pills. Less than an hour later, he was killed by three Clark County deputies. This document offers the public some of the first new information released about his death since the incident occurred over a week ago. An independent investigation has revealed very little to the public and was recently passed on by Clark and Skamania County investigators to Cowlitz County investigators. According to the warrant, Peterson tried fleeing the Quality Inn shortly after arriving once officers blocked his car. The document claims that Peterson was holding a gun, which he dropped and then ran to retrieve. Officers say that video footage from a nearby bank then shows Peterson holding the gun towards officers. Two shots were then fired. A nearby witness claims they heard, quote, two gunshots that sounded different before a volley of shots, which sounded the same. The warrant, which was written after Peterson's death, allowed officers to search the car for methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, drug paraphernalia, and weapons. The search found a total of two baggies with less than 40 pills. And finally, good news. A retired high school art teacher is helping families affected by the wildfires. Marilyn Joyce, who lives in Portland, was looking for a way to help those affected by the Sandy M. Canyon fires. Joyce started a GoFundMe with a goal of $5,500 in coordination with the Sandy M. Canyon School District to provide sketchbooks and art supplies for every child in the district. As of Sunday, over $4,600 has been raised. The aim is to provide children with an outlet to express the difficult feelings they might have after the devastation of the fires. Joyce says, quote, there's no right or wrong. It's just that place that belongs to them, those blank pages. The campaign is hoping to get the supplies to students before Thanksgiving. If you'd like to contribute, the GoFundMe can be found at GoFundMe.com backslash F backslash wildfire dash relief dash art dash supplies dash four dash Santiam dash students. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X-Ray. Now we will hear our interview with Nafisa Fai. Nafisa made history in the recent election by becoming the first black member and the first Muslim member of the Washington County Commission. Here are X-rays DQ Scott and Commissioner Fai. Our next guest made history by not only becoming the first black member, but also the first mu- Muslim member of the Washington County Commission. Um, please uh, welcome to the show. Uh, the lovely Miss Nafisa Fai. Welcome to the show, Nafisa. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. excited to be here. Yeah, congratulations, and thank you for spending the time uh, with us, um, seeing as how you're probably a very busy person right now. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank yes. You. Awesome. Well, um, can you tell us about your Tuesday night? Um, when did you get the results? Um, how was the night for you? Can you just kind of run down, like, you, you know, the list of events and how things went down for you that night? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this has been a long journey. You know, I had a, a primary and then I had a general and um, and I was honestly nervous and excited at the same time and really couldn't actually plan an election night celebration. That's how uh, nervous and busy I was. Uh, and Tuesday was really 
you know, a day uh, spent on the phone because not taking anything for granted. And then Tuesday night, you know, um, my husband was in charge of looking the results. Uh, and uh, he, I remember him uh, looking at it and he screamed. <laughs> uh, and that was a, a positive indication. Um, and, and also knowing that, you know, we, we can't uh, celebrate yet and uh, that we have to wait uh, for all votes to be counted yeah. and uh, and that officials uh, um, to be, you know, to call the race um, yeah. one way or the other. So uh, it was really uh, a nice uh, expectation and, and finally a relief yeah. um, and that our hard work for all, for I think over 14 months paid off and and that more importantly, I have, you know, constituents that can relate to me that I've talked to over the phone, you know, over the phone or in the primary before my, um, before the pandemic that I knocked their door, that was honored that I came to their door and that I was asking for their votes. And yeah, so it was really uh, exciting, um, uh, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it sounds like you're, in a way, you're a, a big motivational point for you even doing this was mainly for the people. It seems like you're really excited more or less to come follow through with your word and do things for people that you've always probably wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. I've always been, you know, community organizer. Uh, my background is in public health. And that naturally led me to be involved in the community and, and be boots on the ground, yeah. and whether that was doing, you know, popular um, education trainings or hosting community organ, you know, like community conversations with other community members and organizations that serve those communities or uh, really doing uh, community needs assessment yeah. uh, and actually knocking doors. Yeah. You know, uh, not canvassing for political reasons, but canvassing for community improvement. And yeah. so I've always um, really cared about deeply about helping people and, and giving back that way. I never really thought, although I would run for office and that would be the role I take on next. Uh, but it was a natural evolution that uh, sort of, uh, you know, Itself. Yeah, because um, I honored. I did a little bit of looking research into you, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, one <laughs> thing that really um, stuck out to me that, that I was kind of interested in to see, of course, you're in Washington County, but you did some work for uh, a lot for Multnomah County. Um, so you have a thing. There's a thing um, that you came up with called the cultural competency framework, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. I guess it's something you put together and Multnomah County really liked it and they started using that. Um, so I was wondering if you could probably even explain what that is or how that's, you know, helped people yeah, out. Yeah, or... you really did your research, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, I used to work for Multnomah County Health Department um, and, um, you know, I think uh, we decided to sort of um, uh, come up with um, a framework that really uh, makes sure that we were, you know, moving the needle positively and addressing disparities uh, you know, holistically and not having 
islands of excellence by meaning that we had some departments that were really great of addressing their disparities and some departments that weren't. So to eliminate those islands of excellency and to promote sort of a holistic department or a county that was succeeding, um, you know, I was I championed a cultural competency framework that really had uh, policies, standards, you know, uh, and um, uh, training requirements for the people. So um, this is a long time ago, um, yeah. but it was really to address equity in in a more you know uh, holistic way. And um, we started as a health department and it went into countywide and. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think other organizations end up uh, adopting and, and model, you know, modeling it after for themselves, for the organizations. Uh, but it started out as a movement to really uh, eliminate the disparities in our services and address the underutilization for certain um, programs uh, for certain populations. And um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So you're not new to this. That's, kind of wanted to get that out it's like oh you didn't just come out of nowhere you've been <laughs> you've been yeah, working on things yeah. so i you know i appreciate that and i was like oh awesome she's really been around for a while so yeah not to just bring up old stuff you know i'm sorry no, <laughs> you've done some no. awesome things since <laughs> no. then of course but yeah. yeah yeah so um so also uh speaking of newer things and breaking new ground um so there was a lot of first um nationwide um you know, for a lot of different people, a lot of culturally too, especially for a lot of Muslims and other, you know, people across the country. Um, the, what does it mean to you to to be a representative, you know, of you know who you are in in people like you um, to show them that you know this is something that's possible? Yeah, I think uh, it's a testament that people are ready for change and people are, you know, ready to. Uh, add representation to places, uh, especially in Washington County, that haven't had uh, representation. You know, Washington County is one of the most diverse counties in Oregon, and um, you know we are being the first of a lot, in a lot of ways um, for the board. Um, it, it's quite shocking, and and to also you know not have. Um, so many elected officials that are communities of color or low-income communities is daunting. So I think it's really um, people speaking up and saying um, we want change and that we want to be the representatives of our constituents and the population, you know, the, like, the board being five members of one race, it's not reflective of yeah. Washington County and and people you know voting me in in a high numbers is really a testament that the hunger for change. Um, so I'm excited and um, uh, you know and I'm, this is not the only addition that I bring to like we're adding public health and people really appreciated that as well. Uh, a lot of the phone calls that I was making to um, voters. A lot of people wanted to talk about, you know, the pandemic and, and myself being in public health and actually serving on the team for the MERS outbreak in Multnomah County back in 2013 when that pandemic happened, which didn't morph into what 
COVID-19 is today. Yeah. Uh, people were really excited and, and currently managing the contact tracing for Washington County. Um, you know, people saw themselves in me. People saw that I could actually identify with their problems and that I would actually bring, um, you know, solution that's closest to the problem. Yeah. Um, would you say that you, um, so you, you're from a refugee camp in Kenya and you've been here for a number of years and obviously I'm sure there's been a lot of things you've had to face making those transitions. Um, would you say like that helps out in the sense people knowing that you've had that firsthand experience as well to see the system firsthand and have to go through it to know what it takes and what is necessary to help out people that have made, faced the same troubles that you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, they knew I was going to persevere and push through and, you know, not um, get uh, deterred and not get, you know, demotivated and that I will stay on my mission because I know it's like this struggle. You know, my background and, and experience is in poverty and I know what that feels like. I live in low-income housing, and I now own my own house. So I understand and know what that feels like and how everybody aims uh, to be a homeowner uh, and how do we create that robust uh, pathway to home ownership yeah. and or what that looks like because uh, I really, um, you know, it's, it's a great way to move out of, uh, people out of poverty, but... Um, but it's not accessible to uh, to so many people. So I think people really saw themselves in me and, and saw that, you know, wow, she's really determined. You know, I was knocking doors and, and asking to learn from the voters, you know, the issues that are most relevant and pressing at that moment. Um, and then when... COVID happened, I switched to the phones, and I was still learning and calling voters to hear about the issues that are now bubbling up because of the COVID. And it was really about, you know, uh, how do I keep, you know, roof over my head? How do I feed my family? You know, what does this mean? You know, I like a lot of mental health issues Mm. that um, so many uh, services were not paying attention to, yeah. and so uh, you know, and, and my business closed, and I worked so hard for this. So uh, you know, like people really feeling, and me listening to them and, yeah. and saying we will get through this. You know, I went through war and refugee, and look me and learn for a race. You know, giving people hope and uh, seeing that we can overcome for. Yeah. Um, you know, and these struggles are moment. You know, they're not uh, permanent; that they will pass. And giving people hope, and just um, seeing that value of, you know, if we stick together, we can uh, persevere, and uh, we can come out of this in a positive way. Yeah, that really was um, mutual beneficial for me being on the phone with voters. Okay. Um, yeah, I was able to. Learn from them and then also help them navigate some of the services that were being offered to people who are most impacted by COVID-19. So would you say um, Washington County um, is doing right or and also what they probably need to start doing better um, to kind of 
start to fix a lot of these problems that a lot of these people are facing. Yeah, I think, you know, COVID-19 has really hit heart our Latinx community. Uh, so I really think that uh, we need to um, focus and, and have an honest conversation and, and a difficult conversation about how do we address that particular um, problem and, and also the economic crisis that's um, happening. You know, how do we prioritize who's most impacted and help small and large businesses, um, um, you know, and not having uh, one-size-fits-all model. Um, people are going through this COVID-19 in a, in a different way. So how do we meet people where they are and, and help them so that nobody harms themselves uh, because they gave up hope and that they think they reached the end of their rope. Um, so I think um, really just um, having um, you know, honest conversations about how do we meaningfully address the impact of COVID-19 to certain populations and then um, how do we help small businesses yeah. while also helping large businesses but really also really um, figuring out ways to uh, drastically help small businesses who are most hit by this COVID-19. Um, do you think there's anything like specifically that can be done um, e as far as even politicians go or even with communities or just anything all around? Like what you, what would you say personally is like would be the biggest help, you know, while trying to put back people's businesses and community? Cause I know a lot of people are suffering money or mainly it's just resources, I guess is what more people, you know, the main problem for people which is getting access to resources. Of course, Mm -hmm. money being the thing you need to get to those resources but you know um yeah did, did you say like there's probably one specific thing that would help start everything that we could do like even just like fundraisers or anything else like that or i don't know what do you think would help the most i think resources i think you said it right resources would help um and um, dedicated resources to the population that's most impacted it's a really good way to start yeah. And also education, you know, outreach. And there's a lot of people that don't know what this COVID-19 means. And then um, also uh, targeted testing would also help the community uh, so that we're able to tackle this, the crisis of this uh, virus and, and also have the resources for people who test positive and then help them that way too. And, and same goes for businesses, really figuring out uh, the businesses that are impacted and then laying down and then uh, um, figure out how do we uh, help them because I think some of the reasons I've talked to a lot of business uh, people who are business owners, small business owners um, when I was doing phone banking and a lot of them said they couldn't access the grants that were available, you know, some of the monetary resources that were available to small businesses. Yeah. Um, because it was sort of uh, allocated to first come first serve, yeah. and and sometimes you know uh, if you funnel money or resources to a few organizations when the population that is impacted is larger, yeah. then those organizations get hit hard, and then people can't even get through them because their phones are jammed and uh, they're backed up and didn't really expect to serve this many people. So, and then people fall through the cracks and yeah. get 
you know, disappointed and uh, um, realized, you know, just give up hope and say, well, I can't even get through the phone of the organization that is supposed to help me with this or I'm supposed to get the resource from. So how am I supposed to get the resource? So I think um, having multiple, you know, um, just balancing it, I think, uh, with the number of people who are going to seek that resource so that there's no, you know, and I think that was, that would be, um, one of the main concerns that I heard that people didn't get access to the resources were first they tried immediately and then they couldn't really get access. And then when they finally got through, it was when the resources went out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you're bringing this up as well. Um, I, I think one thing that is important, which is kind of hard to track, I would say, um, that people need a lot of is hope. I, and I, I think a lot of people feel hopeless in that sense, you know, like they almost want to give up. They're like, well, nothing's happening so far. I don't think anyone's looking out for us. I haven't seen or heard anything that indicates that something is on the way and that I shouldn't worry, you know? And I, I think one important thing that we should have resources, all this stuff is good. And then knowing that's going to happen and in, in, in come, I think is an important thing. Just something, some people just need to hold on to hope because I still believe things are going to go well, but I, I know that even as bad as things have been for me a little bit here and there, things have been fairly okay, but I know uh, uh, in comparison to the way I know other people are dealing with things right now. And I can only imagine how hard it would be for some people to go through some of this stuff. So thank you for yeah. that, um, because I think hope is definitely needed right now. So thank you for yeah. being willing to give that hope and just to know that you're caring and you're thinking about those things as well. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so we do have to move forward with the show, but um, I really appreciate you t- again taking the time um, the Fisa Fi to sit down and uh, take the time to call in and chat with us. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to coming back and uh, giving a debrief of how my time is going. Yeah. So I'm excited and thank you. Oh, thank you. Maybe I'll find something you did 10 years ago. And we'll talk oh, about that. Oh, <laughs> don't do that many years. <laughs> hey, I got the time. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Commissioner Five for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.